Clap, clap your hands and stomp your feet. You're listening. You're listening to the Clap Your Hands podcast, hosted by Elliot Shore Parks and Kyle Newbeck. Here they come. What's going on, everybody? This is the Clap Your Hands podcast, brought to you by Odyssey Sports, Sports Radio 94, WIP. I'm Elliot Shore Parks, my co-host, Kyle Newbeck. Uh, as always, as we, as Kyle always reminds me to start the pod, <laughs> download the Odyssey app. It's where you get all the episodes first. Uh, there'll be more and more coming out for sure, especially if the Sixers uh, keep this winning up. And, um, you know, other than that, Kyle, what's up, man? It's uh, It's been a while. My my life is consumed with Eagles right now, as I'd imagine lots of people in Philadelphia's lives are. But Sixers keep on winning. Yeah, man. It's uh. It's a good time if you're the Sixers themselves, I feel like, because they can just sort of, even if they lose right now, nobody really cares. It's yeah. the, the Eagles are taking all the pressure off of them. Now, I'm sure they would like to be getting more credit for the run that they've been on over the last, you know, let's call it a month, month and mm-hmm. a half. Definitely over the last like week and a half, two weeks with them going out west and having an undefeated road trip. But I think uh, one thing that Daryl Morey has said is like, he didn't understand before he got to Philadelphia that you always want the Eagles to be good, that it like <laughs> lifts the mood. Whereas he was in other, you know, he's in Houston where it was like, if, if the Texans were good there, football is king to a degree in Texas that like nobody cares about what you're doing. Right. Whereas I think people see it here. as like, they're so interconnected, all the fan bases that like, if everybody's rolling, it's just good vibes all around in the city. You get a little more leeway. Well, I remember when the Phillies were making their uh, World Series run, the Eagles were in the current like 5-0, and 6-0, and 7-0, and 8-0. And that might be the only time I've seen the Eagles not be top billing in the city, you know, taking the World Series run. You know, we talked about it on the last pod, but the Sixers being on the West Coast, I think, is uh, is not helping in terms of getting attention for the success they're having. Uh, look, I can speak for probably... Oh, everybody listening to this pod, I can't imagine many people saw the Kings game considering it was directly. <laughs> now, I will say the Eagles made it easier to watch because they put that game away very early on. I mean, 28 nothing at halftime. So you could have flipped over. But what I want to ask you, Kyle, is as someone that not only watched the game, but as the, the Sixers beat reporter we need, uh, watched it you know closely. Tell everybody what they missed while the Eagles were dominating the Giants. I mean, I saw Maxie killing it, but what, what were your takeaways from that game? So uh, let's just zoom out a little bit and talk about that whole West Coast trip that'll lead into the Kings. I think what people are maybe missing is that this team finally sort of looks like a team that is taking this opportunity in front of them seriously. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they're not... They go into that Kings game with the same attitude they had when they had Joel Embiid and James Harden available the rest of the trip, which is this is another chance to get a win. We don't care that Joel's not available, that James isn't playing, that you know everyone's watching the Eagles game. It's up to us, the guys who are left, to go out there and you know make the best of this. And you know I think that was really exemplified by the fact that they go down 21 points in the second quarter. It's the final game of the road trip. That is a classic scenario where most yeah. NBA teams just absolutely lay down. It's like you go down big early in the final game of a pretty long road trip. That's just a loss. Like you eat the loss, you go home. Four and one road trip. Nobody watches the game anyway. Like that would have been something that I think a lot of those guys could have come home 
pretty content with. But instead, they cut the lead down to 10 by halftime. Tyrese Maxey comes out of halftime, scores, I want to say, 13 points in the first like four or five minutes of the quarter. And all of a sudden, it's a real game. And, you know, Sacramento has been they're third in the West yeah, right now. This is not like a, a slouch team that they rallied against. And, you know, you could see that the group that was left had weaknesses, right? Like without Joel Embiid, Sacramento was kind of scoring at will throughout a lot of that game. And there were some turnover problems in the first half for Philly. But ultimately, like they were resilient enough and together enough that they just found ways to win. They had more, I think, I believe that was their highest offensive rebounding game of the season. It was one of the best, if if we're talking about like by rate stats, it was one of the best offensive rebounding games that any team has had all season. And that's just like, that shows you like that team, that to me is like an effort stat. Because this is not a group that has a lot of great rebounders. So to see like Tyrese Maxey and Shake Milton and these other guys that are not Trez or Paul Reed getting offensive rebounds and, you know, making sure they have the best chance they they could possibly have to win the game. It says a lot about the commitment of this group right now, about the, the chance that they think they have in front of them. And certainly the idea that they're looking down their schedule between now and mid-April and saying, we got a tough road ahead, yeah. so we can't throw away any of these games. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you, because when we started this pod, uh, and I don't want to take full credit for them turning around, but there's absolutely no question since we started the pod, their record is immaculate. I mean, since that Rockets game, I feel like they've only lost maybe three or four total games. But one thing we did talk about at the beginning of the pod was a lack of effort and a, you know, a frustrating lack of effort from Joel and Harden. You brought up the offensive rebounding, yes, and efforts that you brought up the fact they were behind, came back, won that game. Uh, I know you weren't on the wet, the Western Coast trip, so you weren't around the team. But I'm curious from, from your perspective that knows the players well, knows Doc, do you think something has clicked? Like, why do you think all of a sudden we're seeing this team take every game seriously? We're seeing this team really come out every night and, uh, you know, you don't see the lackadaisical lax type of effort you used to. What do you think's changed? Well, so you can't say this for the Sacramento game, but some of it is Joel. Like when Joel comes out and as we've talked about leads by example, yeah, it's pretty tough to ignore that your best player who's an MVP caliber player is just playing harder than everybody else. Like I thought the start of the Portland game specifically, he came out and was like, we're going to destroy these guys. And they get out to a 20 plus point lead. Now they they dicked around too much in the second half. He was in foul trouble, so that impacted the game. But like when he comes out and establishes a tone and he's playing two-way basketball rather than just you know, the offense is so good at this point between or mostly just with him and Harden running pick and roll. Like that yeah, is such an automatic top. scoring play for them that the offense is going to be good, even if he's kind of mentally not all there. It's the defensive side of the ball where you really see it. Or like when they get a stop and he runs the floor and you mm-hmm. see, you know, this, this seven foot guy in transition, giving his teammates an outlet and all that kind of stuff. Like that's where it shows up. And I think, you know, you see Joel Embiid sprinting down the floor to get into a play. That is like, oh, wow. Like you're a guy on the bench, you're Trez or Paul Reed or some of their backup wings and guards. And you see that it's like, all right, I got to come into this game and I got to match his energy like that. Yeah. It's really to me, it's that simple. A lot of the time, 
I think also like this is just a good and deep team. I know they've had some nights where the bench is not really going and, and all that, but with Shake Milton, knock on wood, staying mostly healthy this year, that's made a big difference for him, which by extension has made big difference for the team. George Niang giving them shooting off the bench every night. Like all the pieces fit fairly well. And they just have a lot of at least decent players. I'm not going to act like the guys that are coming in off the bench are are world beaters. When, but when you have like five or six starting caliber guys, I guess it depends on what you think of PJ right now. Right, yeah. Maxi and Melton are both starting caliber yeah. guys. Yeah. Um, but so you have at least six starting caliber guys. Then you have a couple who could probably get to that level on their best nights end of your bench you fill in a couple more and you know that's that's the recipe for a good team is having two really really good stars some guys who are below that level but ultra productive every night and then some swing players i think they have all the makings of a very good team and it's been it's been great seeing them live up to that promise rather than you know yeah. disappointing as they have in some seasons in the past well and, and to your point um about the depth on the team even if just looking at the box score i mean toby 17 harold 17 milton 14 uh shake 15 like that's great depth and you know we talked about the pod too about how many guys they have that you could put in a playoff game and that'll be one thing to figure out as it goes on what how much of the success is just they're attacking these games the right way and it's the regular season and how will that change in the playoffs but that's what I wanted to ask you too, because what you mentioned about the heart, the Harden and Bead pick and roll, it's probably the most, the, the best like consistent bucket they've had outside of just Embiid ISO in a really long time in terms of an actual play. Like Embiid ISO isn't really a play. You're just giving them the ball. But in terms of something they could go to that is hard for defenses to stop, I've seen a lot of and heard people say, well, who knows playoff time, whether or not that will, the, the, whether defenses will play it, whether they'll play it the same way. My question for you is then beat hard and pick and roll. Do you see this as something that could work in the playoffs or is it working right now just because teams are getting used to seeing it and they'll play it differently, you know, come game seven of the second round, which is really kind of what this season is all leading up to. To me, I feel like unless one of these guys gets hurt, I don't see why it would suddenly become, I mean, it'll be less effective in the sense that every play gets less effective in the playoffs, but it's mm -hmm. still, it's at such a high floor that even if you dent that a little bit it's still going to be a really effective play for them like the the big difference now on this end is more on the hardened side of things because last year if teams just loaded up against joel and pick and rolls and said you know james you have to go out there and beat us yeah i don't know that harden necessarily had the juice to do that in fact i i know for sure that he did not because there were just times that he couldn't get by guys and, and all that. Like that was well documented. I do think that's been better. I, I still don't think he's 30 point a game, James Harden, like not at that level of athleticism he was at, you know, four or five years ago or whatever. But he has been much better equipped to take advantage of, you know, if a guy's just going to keep backing off him or shading toward Joel, he's going to get to the rim and either score or get fouled or if you at the last minute recover, he's throwing a pass to the opposite corner. Sixers are getting yeah. an open three out of it. So, you know, I, I think that is probably the biggest difference between this year and last year, where last year you could say, all right, they're probably sending too much pressure at James because they were like, that was the weird thing last season is that 
I felt like James was much more effective than he probably should have been because teams were still sending two on the ball at him. And he's just, he's a great passer. So he's making that yeah. play every time. As soon as they switch to, we'll play you straight up and you got to get by somebody, he was done. Like that was the end of his year, essentially. And so to see him able to beat that style of coverage this year more reliably, that's a huge jump in, you know, I think their, their playoff fortunes. And then also, if you look around the league, as we've talked about a bunch recently, Milwaukee has been in a, a downturn. Like the Sixers are number the Sixers two are, in the East. Yeah, they're ahead of them now. They're number two in the East right now, undisputed. And so we're going to see where it all ends up. But if they can somehow manage to – now, I think staying at number two might be unrealistic because of their schedule. But if you can play all but the conference finals on your home floor, essentially have home court for those series – that's a big deal against, you know, there's not a big level of separation between, as we've talked about, between the Sixers, the Bucks, the yeah. Nets, and even the Cavs. I, I throw in there. I know you discount them a little bit, but yeah, I got to say just playoff time. But yeah. Yeah. But that group, if you have home court against all those teams, regardless of who emerges from that group, that's a, a huge, huge deal because that could, that could really like the, the gaps in talent are small enough that that could swing an entire series. Yeah, and I actually think the Sixers have a great home court advantage. Like the games I've covered there, the games I, I've gone to, I mean, I think you could argue it's almost maybe better than the Eagles just because I, I don't like the fact the Eagles is outside. I think it, I like domes better. So just, I, I do think the Sixers have a great uh, home field advantage. But the other question I had for you about the Kings game was, Maxi, 32 points. We've talked a lot about Maxi. In, in, you know, what is his role on this current team? So I do think him going where there's no Harden and no Embiid, going and dropping 32, shows you what he could be if he was not the guy for 82 games. That's very different than doing it for one night. But the fact that he went out there and, and was able to do it, what are your thoughts on that? Because I, I kind of go two ways on it. One hand, it's, man, they can't trade Maxi because he's capable of doing this. Um, he can be that guy if Harden's out, those type of things. The other one is maybe his development is stunted a little bit by Embiid and Harden, and he's not going to be able to be the best version of himself on this team. So so just what do you think of his performance and what were your takeaways from it? Well, I will say I think last week he finally got back to – he looks more like the Maxi that we saw at the beginning of the year. And I think he had a couple really, really good sixth-man games mm -hmm. last week. Like it was finally – starting to click for him like all right when it's almost like you're tricking his brain where when he plays next to joel and james i understand there's like a natural deferring process there he's yeah. just he's not going to rock the boat he's going to take his catch and shoot threes and occasionally attack some closeouts but he's not running the offense and he's not coming in thinking i'm getting my shots up you know whenever possible you bring him in as the first guy off the bench and it's like he's laser focused on, I'm getting mine. I'm going to go score. I don't care that I'm in these actions with Joel. Like I'm calling my number and yeah. I'm going to go out there. And like, that's it. If they can, we've debated the politics and everything else with the, the sixth man decision. But if moving him into that role and him embracing that role means you get the version of him that, his brain now thinks like, all right, I'm, I don't care about the other guys. I don't care who's on the floor with me. I'm going to go get mine. Like that to me, I think is a net positive both for him and the team, because you don't want to, 
the big struggle this year has been it, when Joel plays and Joel is starring, it's been hard to get that A-plus level Tyrese on offense at the same mm-hmm. time. So if you can find this middle ground where Joel is still obviously dominating, scoring 30-plus points a game, and Tyrese is now able to come in and give you this big lift off the bench and sort of carry these bench units, that's a that's an awesome, potentially powerful thing for the team. And then the Kings game, you know, on the odd chance that Joel's not playing or Joel and James aren't playing in this case, he's able to go out there and have that mentality for the yeah. entire game because he knows and is being told by the coaching staff, like, all right, Tyrese, this is your show. Like, we're going to live and die with you. You're going to be the guy bringing the ball up, getting us into our sets. And they can do all sorts of different things with him. One thing I like seeing last week, and this was with Joel on the floor, they did some more of the uh, the Iverson cuts that they used to run for Seth Curry, having him, you know, come across the floor to, for a catch. And, you know, then he's either – if he's open, if the guy who got screened isn't getting there, he's got an open three. If not, mm-hmm. he's hitting a guy while they're still moving, maybe getting downhill, getting to the rim. So I think that's been a an interesting wrinkle to see them getting into that off the bench with him. So I, I think you're starting to see the vision of maybe why you'd make this move. And as long as they continue to win with this setup, I know Melton hasn't really played well in the starting yeah. lineup since they – I guess, quote unquote, announced or unveiled this uh, this new. Well, look, and but... since you jinxed them with that net rating stat, you know, when it was like plus 28 or whatever, I feel yeah, like. I mean, that was always going to come down. You're, but you're a little I, I think I think in Doc's mind, you know, if if they just continue to keep winning and this is working and yeah, it's clearly not negatively impacting Tyrese. We assume at some point the Anthony is going to shoot well again and you know do the things that we're accustomed to seeing him doing on both ends of the floor then there's no real reason to change it the only real justification for it would be do you want to get Tyrese in over PJ which is a debate we've had you know 15 times yeah now. and we'll continue um, that, I'm sure but yeah it's like a lot of things to be encouraged by with both the starters and the reserves I I do wonder if Doc's going to get tricked a little into playing too many bench heavy lineups now but yeah you know, that's, that well, remains to be seen. One thing I think you said that that's really interesting is that when Tyrese now, now that, now that Maxi can just know what his role is, he's able to attack it better. And that is one thing, like the longer I cover sports and I'm around athletes, like just athletes knowing what their role is, is such a huge part of their success. Because I think you even see this with Embiid and Harden too, now that they they have the pick and roll and they're like playing together. The less athletes have to think and like wonder when they're out there, you see their natural skills come out more. So you're right. The politics of the maxi thing, that's kind of next year's problem. Maybe big game playoff, potentially a problem, but that's something to worry about this off season. But in terms of just everybody having a role with maxi now coming off the bench, you're right. He's able to come off and just be like, okay, I know what I'm doing. I absolutely know my role. As opposed to when he's out there with Embiid and Harden, and you're right that it's been been better, and I think he's just getting his legs under him a little bit too. But I do like how now that he has a different role, he can just be the best version of himself. And then with Joel and Harden with this pick and roll stuff, I think you're seeing it make both their games better too because they've kind of figured out how to play together, and this leads a little bit into our next topic. But that could be a reason you're seeing the best version of Joel as well is because he has a team around him that he doesn't have to worry about how the pieces fit as much. For so much of Joel's career, the pieces have not really fit around him. He's never had a guard like James Harden. He's never had a player 
really two now in Toby and James that have changed their game so specifically to what the team needs for Joel. He's actually been surrounded by players throughout his career that have not changed their game to what Joel needed. So I think outside of just Maxi, what you're seeing is the team gel, not just in chemistry, but since they all know their roles better, they're able to, to give the best versions of their games individually. Well, and to that point about, you know, guys needing or not needing to know their roles, but being empowered by knowing their roles. That's something that like, even if you're someone who doesn't want to give Doc Rivers any credit at all, that's something that he historically and certainly as soon as he arrived here makes an impact with, right? Like he came in and at the time that he takes the job, I think people forget this now because, you know, Ben's situation went the way it did. Mm -hmm. There was a really large contingent of people both here and outside of Philadelphia that after that Celtics sweep in the bubble are like, well, maybe they should trade Joel or maybe Ben is the guy they need to really gear everything around. Like he should be the, the, should tailor the roster around him, even though they were already doing that. And that's a whole nother discussion, but there's a lot of that. And doc comes in and it was very clear that it was like, no, Joel is the best player and Mm. the best players who things are going to run through. They immediately get the number one seed in the East, whatever we say about the playoffs. Joel has his best season ever up to that point. And every year since, you know, the roster changes, the situation changes, but it's very clear. It's like, this is the hierarchy. Joel is the guy and everybody else's roles are going to, you know, mold and adapt around that and like that was a that's a potential fork in the road moment for the franchise when doc comes in like let's say doc comes in and there's not agreement on that and he thinks you know maybe i need to make this more of an up-tempo ben simmons centric team and then maybe joel wants out or like you don't know how that goes and so i think that's one thing that doc has always done fairly well he did it in boston when that uh, KG, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen team came together and, you know, they figured out their structure and their hierarchy basically as soon as he came in and they got rolling. So, you know, I think that's something that he's done well with this group once again. And I think it's a big part of their success so far. Yeah. And look, people are not going to give Doc credit. It is what it is, right? It is what it is. They're just not going to give him credit until they win in the playoffs. Playoffs will will change a lot of things. Um all right, let, let's just get into the topic of the pod. The thing, really the game we've been waiting for, at least I know I've been waiting for a ton for this game. Uh, we're finally going to see Joel versus Ben. This Wednesday night, uh, the Sixers will have We assume on. anyway, because, you know, Joel well, did right. sit out yeah. the other night. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm going to be at practice in a little while, and we'll see. I, like, I can't imagine. I, it, I find it hard to believe that he wouldn't play in this game. We just do need to have the qualifier of, like, there is like some yes. shred of like he might not play. Who knows? And especially with these two players too, with Ben, yeah. right? But I will be disappointed if Joel, look, if he's hurt and he can't play, it is what it is. I will be disappointed if he doesn't play for what, you know, like a soft reason. It'll feel a little bit like he's ducking Ben, which is insane because he has no reason to duck Ben. He's way better than him. Obviously that goes without saying, but I just would be disappointed. But What I want to talk about with this, I really want to pick your brain. Um, I think it's a good chance to kind of not recap what happened, but maybe go through it, like what you remember at the time of the Ben thing, looking back at the trade now, um, and just really if your opinion has changed on it at all. Because I do think 
my opinion of Ben has changed, has changed since the trade. And I think some of the opinions I had when it happened, I probably was wrong. And I wish I kind of didn't have those opinions, but curious as someone that lived it, that was with the team every day that, that saw it all. When, when you think back to Ben, like, what do you remember about the ending him and Joel, just the, the whole thing? Is it, do I sound like an asshole if I say I remember being right? Or is that <laughs> well, like, look, look, because I will say that whole that whole season leading into his spectacular meltdown in the playoffs, there was a and it's part of the reason I think that I end up being more negative on Thibault than I actually am in reality, mm-hmm. like a, more negative on him, like online, I should say. Right. Um is that the same contingent that is now like the Matisse needs to play 25 or 30 minutes every night was the same. Like there's no problem with Ben. You're an idiot for questioning his impact and you know yeah. things like that. And you could see it all along. Like it's not like Ben failing in the playoffs was some novel concept before that final year that he actually played in Philadelphia. And it's not like his issues as a player were unmiss or were like missable like this is something that not only plagues him in the playoffs but has become a much bigger problem for the entire league like there are other guys so Andre Roberson great example amazing defender at his peak was like part of those OKC teams and like a really important player on those teams mm-hmm. got to a point where teams just didn't guard him and they left him alone and so then the Thunder are trying to attack a paint that has an extra guy there on every single possession. And it gets to the point where the guy basically can't play and can't make an impact. Now it didn't quite get there with Ben because he is a more, we'll say like a dynamic transition, fast break player. He's a better playmaker than a guy like yeah. Rose and all that. Like I understand why Ben continues to play in those situations where some other guys would not, but you cannot avoid the fact that, he's not going to shoot. And not only that is not even thinking about shooting and teams know that. And so I just, I, at the end of the whole saga, I just was like, I don't know what you guys have been expecting. The guy hasn't changed. So you can say he brings X, Y, Z to the table, but push comes to shove. You need this guy in an important game. He's not there. Like I could sit here and look at this Brooklyn Nets team right now. There's a very, obvious argument to make that Nick Claxton is actually their third best player. And so if you get to crunch time in the playoffs, Nick Claxton might be, and actually probably is a more important defender than Ben Simmons. And a better offensive player. Those two guys both cannot and will not shoot. And there's a very clear case to make that like on a, in the last five minutes of a playoff game that Ben should sit so that they can play Claxton. And then you figure out the lineup elsewhere and like that's not nobody here or in brooklyn when he got there would have accepted that reality now you watch how it plays out every night like and i will say this too i think ben has gotten to a point that is far beyond like i would say i was one of the as an objective media member and not someone who just like this guy sucks or whatever Mm -hmm. like i think i was one of the biggest skeptics of ben in like the final year, year and a half of him being here. But even as someone who held that stance, I can't say that I ever envisioned him being like this impotent of an offensive player. Like he's averaging 
seven and a half points yeah. a game. It's crazy. And so Dude, he's shooting 43% from the line on one and a half free throws a game. It's like, like he's not getting there at all. It's like right. he's and I don't watch every game of there, so I can't say that it's like oh, well, he's afraid to go there or whatever. But like clearly all this has added up to be to make him a player where he's just not an impactful attacker anymore. So all his value has to come on fast breaks, on defense, as a playmaker. And, like, you can carve out a, a good career that way. You're not mm -hmm. carving out a career that you're worth a max contract for. No. So, you know, even as somebody who thought at the time that the Sixers were getting, like, pretty clearly the best player in the trade and who thought, you know, at points during that process that they were going to probably have to settle for more of a, like, a younger ascending player, maybe somebody in, like, the Tyrese Halliburton-type yeah. tier. I thought it was a, a huge get to actually get Harden and not give up like an absolute ton to get him. But I just can't believe how it's gone since. Like it was a, a win trade I thought at the time for Philly. And now it looks like just an absolutely overwhelming win for them, given how Harden looks this year compared to Ben. So I have some questions off that, but first a thought I have about the Ben thing is when the whole Ben thing went down, I, I do think from, from afar, right, someone that wasn't covering it, it was very obvious that his lack of shooting was his, his own doing, number one. But I think what happened with Ben was he the initial mistake he made was he refused to change his game. He refused to add the shooting to his game. And then it all snowballed rather quickly in the worst possible way. Yeah. But I also think I sit here now and looking how it happened with Ben. And I do feel bad for Ben. I know he's had back problems and that's part of it. But clearly some, something happened to him, whether it's just the magnitude of what happened against the Hawks and the entire sports world kind of clowning him, whether it's, you know, the trade thing going so poorly, whether it's just realizing he couldn't shoot, whatever. It's clear that mentally he's a shell of what he used to be, right? Like if you look at what he is in, in Brooklyn, I know he's not shooting the ball, but it's clear he's avoiding it because he's afraid to do it. And I just feel bad for him in, in that regard. Now, it's his own doing because he did not add that to his game. And he had years to do it where he could have done it. And it's also wild when you look back at summer league clips of him, his rookie year, and he's shooting the ball pretty comfortably, right? From like the, you know, not. So three. I will say people love to bring this up. He, he didn't was, shoot man. that well, though. Like that's he was the, shooting. Like that, he, he was yes, a willing he did shoot. Yeah. He yeah. did shoot, but the idea that he was like, oh, man, he's going to come in and make mid-range shots all the time. Like, that's where I think there is a, a middle ground there. Like, I agree with you. There was a different style of play. Right. Whether right. it was an effective style of play is kind of another conversation. I, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is I was in the camp of Ben's not good enough. He's not shooting. He's doing it to himself. You'll never win with him in the playoffs. Like, I was in that camp. But I also think it's turned into a little, and it's just sports, so I don't want to say mean-spirited in that way from fans, but the guy clearly, clearly is going through something that is, I don't know if it's off the court, on the court, whatever. You know, the mental part of this, to me, seems like it's reached a point with Ben where it's almost hard to watch. This isn't, he, this isn't him as a player. He's, he's a better player or was a better player than this. So unless you think it was, not you personally, but unless you think it's the back, and I don't think it's that he's clearly like gone. Like I, I think he's what, whatever's happened to him was almost like a traumatic event in terms of whether it's the Hawks thing, whether it's just how it played out. So I actually find him a bit of a tragic figure. Like I don't find joy 
in dunking on Ben anymore. I don't find joy in like booing him every time he's at the Sixers. And I, I think it's fine if fans boo, like I would have booed Carson Wentz, right? Like I, I think that's part of the game, but I do think sometimes the Ben stuff from a fan's perspective feels very, very mean spirited towards someone that is clearly dealing with something. And in reality, didn't do anything that bad to the fan base. Like he requested a trade. Lots of stars do that. His played out uniquely, but lots of stars do that. And look, he played bad against Hawks. There's no denying it. He shelled up, but he was also somewhat the version of the player he always was. Like it wasn't like he was taking four threes yeah. a game. And then in the playoffs, he just took none. Right. And like, so there's just a part of me that while Ben was here, I was, you know, this guy has to be better. But now that he's gone, man, I just, I just kind of feel bad for him. Well, I do think there's also been an evolution throughout this season because beginning of the year, I do think there was a ton of, it was like any game he played was headline news, whether it was good or bad. Like, and it was really bad to start the year. It was like, who the hell is this guy? He's like an impersonator. Well, the internet. Ben Simmons bodysuit. Yeah. Like every shot he takes, like the thing where he was at the, uh, that like some event with the nets and he shoots it and it's an air ball. Like it definitely reached the point to your point where every little move he made, every tweet, every Instagram post was like the entire basketball world was like hawked in on him, ready yeah. to get retweets and likes for jokes. Like everyone was ready just to like completely clown this guy the most. Yeah. They could. And now I still think there's some of that. I just don't think it's to the point that every single night is like, what did Ben Simmons do? It was like, sure. it almost was like, he was like a, I don't know if this is like a PC term, but like a freak show at the circus where they have like all kinds of the weird, main attraction. Like everybody like full, wanted to, yeah. It was just like, and you, so that's, I agree with you. Like that's when it crossed the point of like, you know, I can sit here and we can have a discussion of like him being a foundational player and whether that works in 2023 and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But like, I'm not going into a game watching the Nets, like, rooting against him or like saying ha 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 like laughing at this guy right. for failing or like whatever i think I, and i tend to agree with your assessment like i think it's almost like a little kid who like did something wrong or got in trouble and they were like afraid to tell their parents or a mm-hmm. teacher or whatever and it they just let it go let it go let it go let it go and then it spirals into instead of making a small mistake then it's something that you hid and you deceived yeah. and you lied and that guilt builds up. And that's like, to me, that's what happened with Ben. It's like when he wasn't shooting earlier in his career, I do think there was the element of he just thought he was playing his way and like the right way. And he knew he was such a high leverage playmaker and all that kind of stuff. And he can do all these other things. Now it feels like he's doing this stuff because he simply can't score or like can't can't attack the basket and can't make free throws and even if he can't like i'm not saying he literally can't dunk the ball or whatever but in his mind clearly he doesn't believe that because like if you were to sit down and watch a nets game most of the time when he brings the ball up it's the the worst version of a sixers bend possession where he crosses half court he turns his body parallel to the rim and he's doing a dribble handoff with somebody and like that there's very little threat of him like faking a handoff and then going to the rim and dunking like we used to see that like two or three times a game with the Sixers now he's only scoring like seven and a half points a game like that was six points on its own just like 
him pretending to hand the ball off and exploiting a team overplaying that going to the rim. Like he's not even thinking to make right. moves like that. So I, I think he very clearly is a much different player at, and a much worse player now than he was at any point in his Sixers career. But I do think like that Hawk series was a real just flashpoint moment for him. And I'd like it. Maybe he can restore himself and the back is a bigger problem than maybe we realize. And he gets some physical juice back and starts trending back in the other direction. But like, as it is right now, I just, I don't think he is capable of being a different player than he's showing them right now. Well, and that's too, and we don't have to get into like mental health discussion of it, but it was part of when Ben left, right? It was, you know, the whole thing, you know, seeing therapy with the Sixers and you can speak more to this because you were there, but you know, like the money and all that stuff. But I think at the time when Ben was going through what he went through with the Sixers, Hey, I don't blame him for asking for a trade. I would have wanted out too. The problem is just because of how bad he was against the Hawks and how much money he made and all those dynamics, he was just a hard, hard player to trade, but there was a lot of, Oh, he's just faking this mental health. So he doesn't have to play. I think now that it's played out, it's pretty clear. I mean, we talked about how Tyrese and uh, Joel and Harden now like, seem so clear-headed on the court because they have their roles figured out. When I watch Ben, to me, he looks like just someone that's that's lost. Like, I think he is so in his own head about everything, like every move he makes, how people are going to think about it, should he shoot, those type of things. So I can't speak to, you know, what level of mental, like that's a personal thing. Every Each situation is so unique. But it is pretty clear in retrospect, this dude like could not be here for whatever reason. I, I and I just don't think it would have worked out at all. But I think like the dunking on him about the mental health stuff at the time in retrospect is a bad look for, you know, some pe- like fans or whatever that did it because he was clearly going through something. Well, so here's what I would say. I 100% agree with you in the sense that I there is a mental component to this. Right. What is not necessarily clear to me is like how seriously that's being taken by Ben and or the people around him. And like, there's no way of knowing, right? Like, I can't say like, you know, if Ben just goes to the uh, psychologist or whatever, like two days a week, he's just suddenly he's cured. Like he's going to be the same guy he was again. But, you know, he spent a lot of, the off season leading into this year saying he's in like this great headspace and all this. And, you know, he's talked to people and there were disputes with the organization in Philly about letting them into the process, like just showing documentation that he was seeing people that that was not provided. And that was part of the the back and forth between those two and the players association and his agent and so on and so forth. And so like, I, it's hard for me to give it like any sort of take on it. Right. Because yeah. like he could be putting in, you know, hundreds of hours of work and it might just like, it might not be possible for him to like quote unquote fix the problem The I guess the disconnect is he presented himself at least as somebody who was not only working on that problem and ostensibly fixed the problem. Like he was saying, I'm coming back this year and I'm going to be me and I'm going to be the best version of me and whatever. And not only was he not that, he is basically just the guy he was at his lowest moment in the Hawks series. Like he is 
as we as I said earlier, he is steps below. He's a his, worse like, average. His average level of play in Philadelphia, like even somebody who was a a Ben hater would say, he is much worse now than he was for like a absolutely fiftieth percentile Ben game with mm-hmm. the Sixers. So it's just hard to square that circle. Like maybe it's just not possible through you know therapy or whatever else he might do off the court to find that level again like maybe there is a level of trauma that he can't work through like I can't speak to any of that all I can say is that I don't see any changes and so I don't I don't know what's being done to change the problem I don't know if he can change the problem but there is very clearly something that has to if he wants to be the the player in person that he was you know two years ago three years ago however far back you want to go clearly there's some kind of breakthrough is going to be, have to be made. And I don't, I don't know how that happens. Like, I know there's no, uh, I'm not a, I'm not licensed as a, a mental right. health I mean, uh, practitioner. I'm just, I'm a guy who watches what plays out on the floor and I can see like this guy is not who he used to be. And phys- there's a physical component for sure. Like I, I don't think he's as explosive or as quick as maybe he used to be. I think you see that with him committing more fouls than he used to but no you'd be in complete denial to say like there is not a mental side of this and yeah to circle back to something else you said like that is something that you you feel bad for the guy for like he's a human being like i don't i don't want someone who regardless of how much money they're making and you know the lifestyle they have like i don't want someone to be at their job and like actively going through trauma to like entertain people like that's a horrible situation to be in and also, I think sometimes, and maybe it's because, and I'll be interested in your perspective on this, like we interact with these people as humans more. I always just think it's so easy for people to say how they would handle something. But I don't think me, you, probably anybody listening to this pod can process what it was like to be Ben while this was going on. Like yeah. for so many people to be so singularly focused on you. Now, again, he brought this on himself with the shooting thing. He did. But I think going through that, it must have been in absolutely insane. This is why I don't, you know, I know I've ripped Joel a little bit for some of the funny tweets and whatnot, but when athletes lash back on people criticizing them, I'm like, it's never a good look because it's, it's a no winning situation. But dude, I think, I don't know how I would handle it if the SBs made a, a joke about me, you know, with everything going on with, the, you know, building the bricks for Ben Simmons or whatever that joke was. So um, yeah, I just think what he went through, I would certainly describe it as a traumatic event. The the another question I had for you as someone that was there for it, because this is Joel versus Ben, and we've been waiting for it. There was a lot of while they were here discussion about are they friends and people that said that they weren't, like all of Sixers Twitter would be like, you know, imagine thinking they don't get along when they like shook hands on the court yeah. or whatever. Um what, you know, where do you think they're at now? What was that like? Were they ever close? You know, we've talked about how Joel's a bit of a quiet guy off the court anyway, but just what do you remember about their specific relationship more so off the court? Cause obviously on the court, we know it was never a, a great pairing. I mean, they're just kind of, they both lived in their own universes, right? Like yeah. I, I, to one more point on what you were just talking about, like, I think, Part of the other disconnect with Ben is at least as a public figure, he's not really very endearing. Like he, he has never been Mr. Like reach out and hug somebody. Like he's not offering warmth. Like he's a very JJ Reddick used to say it all the time. They called him 
the man behind the glass. Like he never lets you into his emotional state or anything mm-hmm. like that. And like, I think it, if hindsight's 2020, if Ben could have been more vulnerable with people and that doesn't mean he has to be vulnerable to the public, but if he's more vulnerable to teammates and people in the organization and whatever, like I think that probably makes a big difference in terms of how everything plays out. I think it's because he's sort of this, I don't mean this in a bad way. Like he's more of a cold, like, you know, I have my people and I stick with my people sort of guy. Like in the end, that ultimately is part of why there's not a lot of love lost at that situation. Well, really quick, that's also probably the result of growing up where you're on the cover of Slam when you're 16. You know, right. just, just being like such a huge star in that in almost your whole life. I mean, I think it's natural to put that kind of guard up. And what's interesting is Joel really wasn't that. I mean, you know, at Kansas, he was a big deal because he was a great prospect. And I'm sure on the campus, he was a big deal. But he was not Ben Simmons. Like Ben was viewed as the next LeBron. And even when Joel was drafted, you know, I don't think he had the kind of star power that Ben did. So they kind of came from very different perspectives of growing up in, in a lot of ways, but also just being in the spotlight of something. Right. So it's like, it's the wonder kid versus the guy who picked up basketball as a teenager yeah. and was just like plucked out of obscurity. And now all of a sudden he's in the NBA. Like Joel's right. story is crazy. Ben has more of the child prodigy type storyline. And I, I do think you see that in a few ways. Uh, as far as their like off court stuff, I just, I don't think there was much there. I think Ben had his like inner circle. I, I don't, again, I don't, I don't mean that pejoratively. Like he's got his close friends and his family yeah. and he kept that close circle that they mostly stuck together and went out together, whether that was during the season or in the off season, whatever they're hanging out in LA. Joel is you know, by and large, a very private guy. He doesn't go out a ton. He likes to sit at home, play video games. And that has like evolved even further now that he's got a, a son. He likes to yeah. spend lots of time with his young and growing family. And so I, I do think there was a, a difference between the two of them just in terms of like how they live their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there was like an active dislike. I think there was definitely frustration I know on Joel's end, but I would imagine on Ben's end too, of like, you know, to that point we were discussing of whether they should build around this guy or that guy. Like Joel made passive aggressive comments over the years. Like I space the floor. I do this. I do that for the betterment of the team that it's like, uh, and I think you should leave where the guy's wearing the hot dog suit. And he says, we're all trying to find the guy who did this. Like <laughs> he's obviously directing those comments at Ben without yeah. saying Ben's name. And then like, if you're Ben and you're number one overall pick max deal, all this stuff, I am, I guarantee you there's a part of his brain. That's like, well, why am I playing with like, I'm an up-tempo fast break playmaking guy. Why am I playing with a slow post up center like why is the it doesn't make sense to have this guy on my team there were also like the i don't know how true this ever was but the rumors about ben would have preferred to go to the lakers over the sixers and like some of that and so that adds to it too um so yeah i mean i don't think they were ever perfect partners i i think if they had won i think they probably would have put all that stuff to the side like i i they really did win a lot of games won. they did yeah. win a lot of games yeah I think people overcomplicate it a lot of times. Like there are a lot of guys around the league who are not best friends as a group that yeah. 
they win a ton of games and it doesn't really matter. Like that's just, if you find people you succeed with in most cases, unless you're Kyrie Irving and <laughs> want to make a point about wanting to win without LeBron and fail at making that point. Otherwise, most guys are happy to, you know, if I can win a title or if I can be really successful with these guys, let's run it back and change other stuff and we'll figure it out. Like I, I do think that that is the overwhelming idea that most guys live by um but yeah like i it was not as bad as people would exaggerate it was and not as good as people on twitter would be like oh look at that they shook hands and smiled on the court like it's it just kind of they were very neutral ish co-workers most of the time yeah no I, i mean look and i do think joel at the end and i under i do understand joel's frustration with ben i mean again just just shoot the ball, man. Like it's a pretty simple thing. So I do understand Joel at the end, the passive aggressive shots. You can debate whether he should, shouldn't do it. I understand. I don't think his frustration was coming from the wrong place. I think maybe just his handling it at times wasn't great, but look, it's played out how it's played out and it sets up for, you know, a huge game, not just because it's Joel versus versus Ben, but big game in the standings. I think the Nets are only a half game back. Uh, The Sixers, you know, again, the schedule they have coming up, I agree with you. That's part of it. I think they could catch the Celtics the way they're playing. It'll be tough. Oh, they, no way. They're only no four games way. back. You, you, you talk about it like it's like 15 games. And, yes, their schedule is tough for sure, but teams are also looking at them and going, we have – I mean, the Sixers are a top whatever team in the NBA right now. Three, five? I mean, it's not like they're going to be playing lots of teams. Oh, I there. agree with that. Like, they're yeah. very, very good and deserve the respect. I'm just – but I'm – I think the Sixers literally have the toughest schedule from here until the end of the year. Number one, yeah, rank the schedule until the end of the year. Yeah, but they also just beat the third team in the West without their two best players. Oh, actually, number two. There they're, you go. So there's some. They're some number options. two behind the New York Knicks. Um, wow, that's. But brutal. here, so here's the thing: they have to play. Now you could cut this either way. Before the end of the year, they have to play the Celtics three times. They play the Nuggets, who are the current number one seed in the West, twice. Right. They play the Bucks. They play the Bucks twice. They play the Nets three times, and they play the Cavs twice. So, in that sense, they have as good a chance as anybody to decide how the standings end up, Mm -hmm. right? Because if we assume they win, you know, a lot of the games against lesser competition, ultimately it's going to be decided by how do you how do you split these games amongst the top five teams in the East? The problem is the Celtics with that four game lead, even if you win a couple of those Boston on an average night is just better than them and has been better than them. And so it's asking a lot for them to, uh, to make up that gap. And I think Boston, Boston is like middle of the pack in terms of actually their remaining opponents. I'm looking at it right now are below 500 the rest of the year. Not good. That's just like it's a huge, huge ask if, unless somebody like if Tatum got hurt or something, sure. But I, I don't think, I think two is realistically as high as they're going to go. Yeah. And you could be right. I just, you know, and you know more about this, but I just look at four games and that does not feel insurmountable, but you know, to your point, it, it is tough. So last thing before we wrap this up, uh, and I actually have a, a TV show take for you, but I guess just your last, Ooh. your kind of preview of the game. I mean, we've talked about it at length, but Obviously, besides Joel and Ben, just kind of what are you looking for? And do you think Joel will be extra kind of, you know, worked up for this game? Just what are your thoughts on the game? 
Yeah, I don't think this is Juan Joel showing up to and acting like he's he's too cool or too big no. for. Um, I hope he doesn't I, overdo it, man. You know, like there is definitely a, a level of like, all right, I hope he has the proper. Uh, yeah. yeah. Because yeah, I mean, Joel is a gigantic human being. So if he's too revved up and he like throws Nick Claxton into the stanchion, very right. very well, easy way to pick up an offensive foul, and then that spirals. And, we talk so much about you know Ben being in his head. And it's different. I do think Joel sometimes the emotion can be a positive or a negative for Joel. Like if the game starts out poorly, I can picture Joel getting very frustrated with that. I do think he's gotten better at playing through that kind of stuff and rallying after tough starts. I So circling back to Nick Claxton, it is interesting in the sense that like he's been this huge defensive weapon for them, like has really changed their fortunes on defense in a lot of ways. They went from being this horrible defense to a better one over the last couple of months, but he has given up just a, a comical amount of weight to Joel. And yeah. so it almost makes it that like, they don't have a chance in hell to guard him. I think this is a game. The Sixers should win comfortably. Now, if Kyrie Irving just has a crazy game, which is, you know, very possible. And he's been good. That, he's been very good last few games. Um, that could swing things, but this is a game that without Durant, I think the Sixers are going to be clearly favored in as long as they are uh, fully healthy and, you know, Joel and James both play. We'll see if uh, there are any shenanigans with that, but yeah, like yeah. I, the atmosphere, it was disappointing that the first time Ben came back and played, Joel did not play because that was like, you know, the Sixers won that game, great performance, all that. That took all the luster out of that game for, for sure. Me. So I'm really excited to see, you know, what that looks like. I I don't think after our long Ben conversation, it's not like we're going to be like, whoa, can't wait to see what Ben has for Joel because <laughs> Ben has nothing for anybody right now. Yeah, uh, but it'll just be interesting. Yeah. We didn't even talk about the Harden part of it. I mean, there was that no. from Kyrie, you know. So so there's that aspect of it too. But look. The nice thing is in a in a Sixers season that early on can sometimes, especially with everything going on with the Eagles, like Wednesday night, the center of Philly will be again on the Sixers. So we will certainly be doing a pod. I think we decided on Thursday uh, morning yeah. to talk about that game. But before we wrap this up, because I know you have to go to practice for the Sixers, I have to go to practice for the Eagles. Dude, let me tell you, The Last of Us is insanely good. For those that oh, don't it's know, great. It's on, on HBO, um, it's two episodes in It's called the last of us. It's like about if a fungus virus like took over the world. You, so we texted about this a little and you mentioned it's off a video game. I, I didn't know. I didn't know that you can tell watching it, how different parts would look like cool levels. But I think the craziest part about the show is the opening scene where it kind of describes how it could happen. And it's not that crazy. Like it, yeah. it probably won't, you know, knock on wood, obviously won't happen. But it, it wasn't like it's a science fiction show where you can talk yourself into thinking, especially coming off COVID, but you can talk yourself into thinking like, holy shit, this could this type of thing could really happen. They actually did change the outbreak part of it from the game a little bit. And I mm -hmm. think it was a smart change that they made to make it more of this like active fungus sort of deal yeah. compared to. Because I think it's a little tougher to sell as like an airborne virus. Yeah, they said that um, after the show and like the I'm not again <laughs> you saw that in like the post show thing from this week. But dude, yeah. like the images where the and this isn't a spoiler. And if you're if you haven't watched it, you definitely should. I'm not into science fiction shows. It's not even really that, but it's it's unbelievable. But the scenes where like they're that how it spreads, where like it comes out of the people's mouth and like, oh, it's 
it's really, really good. So you played the game, I guess, based off. I played that. both games. I actually reviewed the second one for phillyvoice.com. Okay, I did yeah. not like the second one, the but the first one is a classic um, for many reasons. I'm is it very, called The Last of Us? Like, is that what the game's called? Yeah, it's called The Last of Us. And then The Last of Us Part 2 is the sequel. Um, and I actually hate being lumped in with the people who don't like the second game because there was this yeah. stupid like political controversy over the second game, which is not the reason I dislike it. I like right. dislike it for very complicated reasons that what was the go back through my childhood of video games. Um, right. But but yeah, so I'm very curious to see what you think of how it ends because I, from my from my understanding, the first season is just the first game. And the ending of the first game is like this really insane. So moment. you know how it ends then. Like, yeah, it, I know exactly what's going to happen. I know what's coming. Wow. Well, it's kind of crazy because I feel like a lot of these shows, you know, like Game of Thrones, like they're based off books. It's weird to me that something could be based off the ending of a video game. I mean, I guess mm -hmm. it's the same thing in terms of telling a story. And to be honest, the last time I played non-sports video games was probably when I was like, playing Tarzan when I was 12. So I don't do, I don't do like those type of games. Obviously they've advanced in terms, in terms of storytelling and characters and structure and stuff like that. But it's weird to me to think that the video game already says, says the ending. And so there's a sequel. It's hard to imagine there's a sequel off this, but yeah, I, I mean, I can't get into the, what yeah, the no sequel really. has, cause I don't want to talk about how the first one ends. Yes, but. yes, yes. Yeah. But no, super good show. I'd highly recommend it to anybody that, that has not watched it. So I guess it's we'll, crushing we'll, in the ratings right now. So clearly people are loving it, which I'm happy about because the more good video game adaptations there are, the better, because most of them are absolutely terrible. Yeah. Well, I'll say it's very well done too and how it's shot and the, like the special effects and all that stuff. So, all right. Well, I'll be, you know, waiting for that one next Sunday, hopefully after an Eagles win and, you know, I'm planning my trip to Arizona, but, uh, we will be back on Thursday um, after the Sixers Nets. Definitely talk about that one. Um, and then, yeah, just more pods coming forward. Uh, any final thoughts, Kyle? I know, you, I know you have to get out of here. But. Nah, just uh, watch The Last of Us and get ready for, hopefully, Joel versus Ben. Oh, I, I, I want it so bad. I crave the content of it. But, all right, thanks to everyone that's listened. Um, once again, so clap your hands, pod. Odyssey app, download it, 94 WIP. Uh, I'm Elliot, he's Kyle, and we'll uh, talk to you guys next time. See you guys.